The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. This week's episode is about the brazen assault on free speech, and especially the free speech of Christians, that's happening not just in Britain, but throughout Europe, and actually seems to be emanating from Europe. We hear about the disturbing case of Paivi Rassanen, a 60-year-old Finnish politician who's facing a jail sentence because of her opposition to gay marriage. The liberal establishment's desire to punish her and punish her savagely for her evangelical Lutheran views is something that would have seemed inconceivable a few years ago. But then so would the spectacle of a 71-year-old London street preacher being surrounded by police officers for preaching the same thing, opposition to gay marriage. You don't have to share this particular Christian view to see that the proliferation of laws effectively banning holding the wrong opinion right across Europe is part of a comprehensive assault on free speech, one in which Britain's Conservative government, despite its announcement this week that it wants to preserve freedom of debate in universities, is thoroughly and bafflingly complicit. I've been talking to Paul Coleman, a British lawyer based in Vienna who's executive director of ADF International, a Christian legal advocacy organisation that believes that the concept of hate crime is being used to enforce absolute uniformity of opinion by powerful organisations all over the world. And since those organisations now include all the big tech companies, the culture of censorship now seems unstoppable. It's not, however, an entirely new culture. As Paul Coleman explains, and this is not a right-wing conspiracy theory, it's historical fact, some of the nastier aspects of these laws are part of the legacy of the Soviet Union. Paul Coleman, last month we witnessed some extraordinary disturbing scenes in Uxbridge, of all places, in West London, where a 71-year-old Christian preacher, John Sherwood, was pulled off the streets surrounded by police, had his Bible taken away from him for defending traditional marriage between a man and a woman. Just that. Not inciting hatred, but expressing a view that was actually the law of the land until fairly recently, and is supported by a significant number of Britons. So people watched, I think, in incredulity, as this man was surrounded by police who had taken it upon themselves to monitor, censor, and Harris, this 71-year-old Christian preacher. And I think people were profoundly shocked by the thought that this sort of thing could happen on the streets of Britain. But it's also happening throughout Europe, which was something I hadn't really been aware of. I'd taken my eye off the ball, I think. I'd been thinking a lot about censorship in America and the behaviour of the police in this country. But in Europe, there's this extraordinary case of Paivi Rassanen, who's a 60-year-old grandmother, a medical doctor, a politician, a member of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Finland, serves on her local parish council, and 
This Finnish MP is facing two criminal investigations, one for a tweet, one for a church booklet, again simply signalling her support for traditional marriage, not inciting hatred. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about these two cases as examples of what's happening and to what extent this is becoming a Europe-wide problem. These are shocking cases, and unfortunately, they're not isolated incidents. If we, first of all, think about the the case of John Sherwood, the street preacher, he's a pastor in North London, he's been a pastor for, I think, 35 years, and he would very regularly go onto the streets uh, to do some open-air preaching, which is very much part of the culture of the UK. And as you say, he was he was dragged, literally dragged from the streets by a group of police officers because someone was allegedly offended by what he was saying. And what's sad about it, aside from the fact that he's a, a 71-year-old man being dragged off the streets by police, is that it's he's one of many over the years that we've seen street preachers routinely arrested by police, detained Sometimes they are uh, released quietly the next day or, or later the same day. And it enables the police to just essentially keep on doing this, not learning from it, not changing their policy, not changing their approach, and silencing these people. And essentially the very worst that could happen is that they are sued for wrongful arrest um, and maybe a year or two down the line, they pay out a sum of around about £3,000 and it's not reported and, and nobody cares and it's a drop in the ocean to them. And then for everyone else, everyone else is watching on in horror at all of this happening. Of course, the obvious impact of this is that people then self-censor for fear that they could be dragged off by the police, that they could be arrested. And so, in my opinion, this seems to be a very deliberate tactic which is being used to pick a high-profile person, be it a street preacher or public figure, make an example of them. And then honestly, it doesn't matter if they're successful or not in the prosecution, because they have still been able to get what they wanted, which is everyone else scared into silence. One thing that puzzles me is that I find it a little bit hard believing that the average British copper is actually comfortable doing this profoundly un-British thing of pulling somebody off the street, surrounding an elderly man, taking away his Bible. I find it hard to believe that this comes naturally to the average police officer or to many police officers. What do you think? Are they just obeying instructions, as it were? Certainly in the, in the YouTube footage of this particular arrest, it, 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 looks, it looks that way. They, they don't seem to be overly zealous in, in carrying out their duties. And I think that what's happened in the last decade in, in the UK and, and across all of Europe is the the spread of uh, so-called hate speech laws and with them what we could call hate crime uh, and also this concept of, of hate incidents and and really this entire idea that what we need to be doing as a state and at the arm of the state, the, the police, the courts and everything else is somehow stopping hate and using the criminal law to, to do so. And that's what's spread across the, the UK police force and across all of Europe, is this idea that we can and we should find so-called hate and make it illegal. And, and, and people who speak hatefully to uh, arrest them, to prosecute them, to convict them. But all of that turns on the question, the idea of, well, what is 
hate and, and who gets to define it? Who gets to decide for all of us, for the entire continent, what is free speech and what is this so-called hate speech that is apparently criminal and should be um, punished? I know you have some very interesting ideas, which we'll come to in a minute, about the origins of this culture of censorship in Europe. But first of all, tell us some more about the case of Paisi Rassanen. So I've been working full-time on the issue of free speech in Europe for the past decade or so, and this is the most shocking case that I've been involved in that I have witnessed. Um, she has served as a member of parliament for over a quarter of a century. She was a former minister of the interior, which is the Finnish equivalent of home secretary for a number of years, very high profile figure. And she's well known to be an evangelical Christian. In 2019, the summer of 2019, the church in Finland, the former state church, the Finnish Evangelical Lutheran Church, decided to become an official partner of the gay pride event in Helsinki. And Parvi Rasnan sent a tweet directed at the leadership of the church to say, well, how does this uh, decision align with the church's own teaching biblical teaching on marriage, on sexuality. And with this tweet, she sent a picture of a passage from the Bible from Romans chapter one, and that opened up this criminal investigation against her. Once that happened, the general prosecutor then began looking for other things that she said, and bearing in mind this is a lady who's been in public office for over a quarter of a century. They found a pamphlet that she had written for her church in 2004 on marriage and sexuality, and they made that a focus of criminal investigation. And then they also found a radio interview that she had given, and they extracted approximately two minutes out of a one-hour conversation and, and took those two minutes out of context and made that another criminal investigation. So she's now facing three separate counts of in Finnish or what they call ethnic agitation, which is essentially hate speech. In each one of these carries a two-year prison sentence maximum. And this is all going ahead. And it was um, oh, 10 days ago or so that the prosecutor announced with a big press release with fanfare that she was proceeding with the prosecution on all these three charges, which is an ex extraordinary set of circumstances. When I hear these details, I think inevitably of Eastern Europe. I think of the Stasi. I think of the way things used to be before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And perhaps that isn't a coincidence. I've been reading an article you wrote about the origins of this new culture of censorship in Europe. And there is a connection with Eastern Europe and with the Soviet Union. And I wondered if you could explain that to me. Yeah, there, there absolutely is a, is a connection in terms of the origin a lot of a lot of the laws that are across Europe today, including in the UK. I'll try and give a very short summary of, of the last half century or so. So after the Second World War, all of the countries of Europe and around the world got together and they drafted international human rights treaties, uh, started with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and then several legally binding treaties followed to protect people's rights against dictatorships, against the overreach of the state. But of course, at that time in history, it wasn't just Western liberal democracies negotiating these documents. We also had the Soviet bloc and a number of communist-led countries in Europe and other places that were also negotiating partners. And so as these fundamental human rights documents were drafted, you essentially had on a large number of points, you had a dividing line with two very clear sides. You had the 
the Western pro-freedom, pro-free speech on this issue side. And then you had a very strong communist-led, Soviet-led voice. Uh, And you see this play out in these negotiations. And I researched it and tracked down a lot of these documents that were written at the time in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And it is as clear as black and white what's happening. And the upshot of it all is that within the international legal framework we have today, we have what has been called by others a uh, tenacious Soviet legacy. And it means that international law and the documents that a lot of then constitutions that came in Eastern Europe and elsewhere were then based on encourages to a degree the state to censor speech, which is said to incite hatred. And so you see in that phrasing and that understanding of inciting hatred that we have in many of our statute books today traces all the way back to this idea that the Soviets first put forward half a century ago. And so it does have this Soviet legacy. There's, there's no question about it. It's not, it's not a debate. It's not an opinion. It, 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 is, it is fact. And you see this play out in a lot of the laws that now exist today. I wonder to what extent there's also a Western European element, a continental European element, in the sense that the whole legal philosophy of continental Europe, and by that I mean democratic Western continental Europe, Europe of the European Union, has historically been one in which you can do anything that the state permits, as opposed to the British and American common law-based idea that you can do anything that the state doesn't forbid. I was thinking about Europe and trying to think of a country in Europe which has actually been an uninterrupted democracy for the last hundred years. And apart from Switzerland, I had a very, very hard time. So the notion of the brutal suppression of free speech is not as foreign to continental Europe as it is here, either in terms of their historical experience or their underlying legal philosophy. I think that's absolutely correct. And I think what we see in a lot of the European countries, um, perhaps less so in the UK, but the UK has its own set of problems, is increasingly, uh, not just on on some of the issues that we're talking about here in terms of Pavi Rasnan and and John Sherwood and talking about these issues of uh, biblical morality or, or sexual ethics and those sorts of things, but across an increasingly wide range of topics, we see this very clear right way and a wrong way, a right opinion and a wrong opinion to have on on a, on a number of different topics, whether it be energy policy, uh, whether it be, uh, for example, immigration, and whether it be on, on something like Brexit, as I've spoken to many Europeans over the last few years, there's there's no question that essentially there is a, there's a right and a wrong way to think on any given topic. And, and increasingly what's happening is if you think the wrong way about any of these topics, then you're not just wrong, but um, perhaps you ought to be punished as well. And that's what we're seeing play out across the continent. And uh, whether it's Eastern Europe, Western Europe, North or South, the pattern is fairly consistent. And you may wonder, well, why is this happening in Britain with its common law traditions of free speech? But actually, we have what Michael Gove calls the Bob a liberal metropolitan class that I think really identifies with the legal philosophy of Europe far more closely than it does with the traditions of this country, which is why they were so hysterically opposed to Brexit. 
Yes, I think that what we don't really see in the UK much difference as this plays out legally to other countries of Europe. So I think in the UK at a popular level, there's a more popular embrace of free exchange of ideas and free speech. And we see that in the columns that we see published, quite a wide array of columns within the mainstream media. There'll be many countries in Europe where within the mainstream, the opinion corridor of what you're allowed to talk about is very narrow. But in the UK, I think that it's it's much broader, much wider. Um, but it's But it's not wider on television. It's not wider on the BBC, for example. No, that's true. But if you think, for example, of a Rod Little column in The Spectator, that would not be published in a lot of European countries, I think. And there is a a real monopoly on print media in a lot of European countries in a way that the UK has more diversity. But I agree, not, not on TV. But when it comes to the law, when it comes in particular to this new ideology, this new culture of, of hate laws, and we put everything in that, hate incidents, hate speech, hate crime, thought crime, or however you want to call it, the UK is no different to the other countries in Europe. And in some ways, it's it's significantly worse. For example, this whole idea of non-crime hate incidents, that the police can investigate you and, and file a hate incident against your name, even though you didn't commit a crime, and it can stay on your record for, for years, and perhaps you don't even know about it. Talk about the Stasi, and that's happening in the UK, and other countries in Europe have not got this concept. So popular level, I see in the UK a broader embrace for free speech, but at the legal side or how that's playing out in the legal sphere, I see very little difference and sometimes worse. Isn't that rather a strange thing to be happening under this particular Conservative government? Senior members of whom, including particularly the Prime Minister, are veteran opponents of the chattering classes and their dogmatic opinions. I mean, people like Boris and Michael Gove have spent years mocking the authoritarian attitudes of the Liberals in the press. Now they're in power and it's still going on. I'm an outside observer on this. I live in Vienna, Austria and have done for a long time, so I'm not in the day-to-day of the UK. What I see is a lot of good sound bites from time to time from a few people and the occasional good speech, but very little action, actually. And often the, the sound bites, the good speeches, they just so happen to align with an election that's coming up or some other um, political gain. But I, for the last 20 years, 15, 20 years, Um, Governments, whether Conservative or Labour, have tried to introduce additional restrictions on speech within a UK context. Um, And so, for example, this Conservative government pushed very hard to introduce an extremism bill. What they were trying to outlaw with non-violent extremism, at the time when they were talking about that, and it was Theresa May who was pushing for it, the closest comparator of the sort of legislation that they were looking at was Russia, uh, who has a similar law. Or uh, at the moment, significant challenges to the laws they're looking to introduce on, for example, online harms bill, which could have uh, far-reaching restrictions on speech or restrictions on freedom of association and how people can campaign and gather together or slightly different area, but relatedly, talk of the government introducing a ban on so-called conversion therapy. And I know that's a very heated area, but ideas behind this bill would be to potentially criminalise even pastoral 
prayer between people within a church context. And all of this is coming out of a conservative government. So although I definitely see some nice comments every now and then, I've seen very little action actually in a very long time. I wasn't surprised at all at this sort of thing happening under Dave Cameron, who spent his entire premiership genuflecting to his ideological opponents, or the useless Theresa May. I'm just surprised that it's happening under Boris. On the subject of conversion therapy, by the way, I, I have to say I think a lot of conversion therapy is useless and harmful, but I can see the anxieties about thought control. Well, they, they're using the umbrella term of conversion therapy like they do with so many of these things. And they, they pick out a few scare examples where they can get broad-based agreement on them. Uh, and then in the details, it's actually covering a far, far wider array of, of activity. And the things that they're trying to target that would be at the more extreme end of things would be offences anyway and don't need further legislation. But I, but I, I, I do agree with you on that. On the substance. I, uh, w- one thing on, on Boris Johnson, I, mean, I remember he famously, as mayor of London, gave a speech where he said that London is one of the most tolerant places on earth, and as such, it should be intolerant of intolerance. So, in my opinion, the idea that we should be intolerant of intolerance, it pretty much is the best way to encapsulate this dogma of trying to outlaw all of this type of behaviour, that we're somehow duty-bound to rid the world of what we perceive to be intolerance. And as such, we should be intolerant of it, we should weed it out, we should criminalise it, we should ban it. So it doesn't really surprise me that much, because although he is happy to write his columns in support of some of these freedoms, I mean, that was his position, for example, as Mayor of London. Perhaps we're forgetting just what an opportunist Boris is. Can I talk for a second about a society which has traditionally been tolerant of intolerance because it has a First Amendment, the United States? It's still true, I think, that public debate is far more vigorous, robust and less circumscribed by rules than public debate almost anywhere else. But over the last few decades, we've seen the steady, relentless emergence of a cancel culture, call it what you like, an intolerant, dogmatic, liberal culture of policing thought, emanating from the universities and actually spreading through public institutions in the United States, to the extent where there, too, you can be arrested for preaching a traditional biblical message on campus, for example. So to what extent do you think this American fad, and the whole notion of political correctness comes from America after all, is influencing what's happening in Britain and perhaps Europe? I think that the the situation on college campuses in the US is really quite extreme. There is just a huge reluctance to in, to encourage free speech on, on campuses where we get a lot of these um, ideas from like safe spaces or it was in, in a sense what, where a lot of the cancel culture began in that speakers were being cancelled after people protested. They created free speech zones where you could have your free speech on this tiny little pocket of campus away from everyone else. These are the the top universities in the world. Uh, This is where the future leaders uh, are being trained up. And this is what they're they're witnessing, this is what they're being taught. So that's within an elite educational part of US society. And on the other side, you have the entire tech industry and all of the big five, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, who are 
pretty much in unison on the desire to, again, promote a right way and a wrong way about how to view certain issues um, and engage in open censorship. At least it's become much more open in the last six months for views with which they corporately disagree. And so there are very strong protections for free speech in the U.S., because of the way the Supreme Court has interpreted the First Amendment. But if you look at some of the most important aspects of US society, higher education, and then the leading tech industries, which are the richest companies in the world, then they are all pulling in another direction. And so it's a mixed bag with a worrying trajectory. And I think that a lot of that is influencing what we see here, and, and vice versa, because they see these cases, they see the case of Parfi Rosanen and others, and there's calls to introduce that sort of thing in the US context too. So I, I guess that's just the way of globalization that law and ideas, they can move from place to place very quickly. Let's talk for a second about big tech censorship, because obviously it's an incredibly important part of the picture. When these companies, Facebook, Google, whatever, were startups, they presented themselves as liberal champions of free speech, that social media was a place which wouldn't police your thoughts in the way that the media would, by virtue of having control over what they publish. And as you say, there seems to have been a very rapid alignment with the dogmatism of the liberal media and liberal politicians. Yeah, and I think that First and foremost, these are businesses. They are profit-making machines, and they make huge profits. I remember when, when Jack of Twitter said that Twitter was the free speech wing of the free speech party. But now they're a publicly traded company. They have boards and shareholders, and they're designed to make profit. And maybe some of the founders, maybe Zuckerberg and co., still genuinely believe in some of the free speech principles upon which they founded their companies. But even if they did, these are publicly traded companies that are accountable to, to shareholders and boardrooms. And so you see how big tech is essentially moving with with the market and increasing its profitability. And so whether or not they have principles anymore, free speech principles anymore, is sort of irrelevant because they're driven to make profit and they're currently making huge profits. And the equation that they must have made is that they will make more money by doing this, by attracting more business and future opportunities. So it seems that it will only continue to go in that direction because they all hold such monopolistic positions over the market now that even if some free speech startups wanted to try and challenge them, it's virtually impossible, not just to, to challenge the platforms themselves, but some of these companies, if we're talking about, for example, Amazon, they control the infrastructure on which the internet is built. And so it's not just a question of, I'm going to start up my free speech alternative, because you can't even get housed. And that's what we saw with Parler, the app that challenged Twitter. They were pulled, not just the app was down, but it wasn't available in app stores. And then Amazon Web Services pulled it completely. And so we're dealing with companies that, uh, whether or not they have principles anymore is irrelevant. They're profit-making. They hold a monopolistic position. And it's going to be exceptionally hard to challenge that in the future. Well, generally speaking, corporate capitalism has fallen in love with the idea of policing thought. Presumably, it's very profitable for them. But why is it profitable for them? Yeah, why 
is it profitable for these big companies to marginalise and silence large sectors of their potential customer base? I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know if I've seen it, because it seems counterintuitive. You know, one of the rules of business, you would think, is that you want to sell as many things to as many people as possible. But they are operating in an opposite way. They are marginalising and limiting sections of their customer base. And I suspect they're doing so because they hold a monopolistic position. They face no real penalty for that, because you or I or anyone else can huff and puff all we want. We still have WhatsApp, we still are on Facebook, we still have Twitter, because we have to be, because there is no no alternative. So our objections don't really count very much. We're unable to vote with our feet, because they control where our feet go. I suspect it's also something to do with the fact that big companies generally are chasing after the business of millennials who've been brainwashed at university. I think that that is correct, that they must be looking at this through the, with a future mindset and trying to attract these people now and then hold their business for a very long time. But I, I do think that the marketplace only really works and, and the customer only gets a benefit where, these, where there is genuine competition between the companies. And, and there is no competition here now. I mean, it really doesn't matter whether we like it or not. We can't choose otherwise. We're bound to their services for the foreseeable future. And therefore, there's really no cost to them because in acting this way, they attract these other people who are very happy with these decisions. They get investors and and others and they get all the plaudits. And we're still there anyway, complaining and grumbling about it, but we're complaining and grumbling on their platforms. So finally, Paul, what can be done about this all-enveloping culture of the suppression of speech, the suppression of thought even? I think there certainly isn't an easy answer to what can be done. I'm I'm a lawyer and I would love to think that if we only had more robust legal protections, then then that would be the answer. But of course, it's much deeper than that because this is so ingrained at a a cultural level. If things move in a positive direction, it's not going to happen overnight. And therefore, I think the most important thing that we can do for your listeners and, and everyone else is to be prepared to stand up for their freedom, to be prepared to express their views as they wish, and I think to be prepared to count the cost for that in the short term, because it will only get worse if everyone self-censors. I was in conversations with people recently, a diplomat friend, a school teacher, an accountant at one of the big four firms, all basically saying the same thing of, of how hard it is to express their opinions and their worldview. They were all Christians within those contexts. And I think that so long as we all continue to keep our opinions to ourselves for fear of what might happen if we share them, then things will only go downhill. And so we'll see what happens with, with Parvi Razanan's case, but she has made it very clear in her public statements, her press releases, that she is continuing to stand firm on the principle of free speech and wants to protect not only her right to speak her views and her mind, but also everyone else's. And we need more people like that who are prepared to not only be prepared to voice their beliefs, their deeply held views, but also to count the costs and to stand firm if, and perhaps when, trouble then comes. It doesn't help that the leaders of established Christian churches are busy genuflecting away in a sort of frenzy to the liberal consensus with a look of sort of 
cringing fear on their faces. I'm thinking of Welby. Francis too. I mean, you know, he doesn't necessarily look frightened, but he looks quite determined to join forces with all these international thought-controlling bodies. I think that it seems to me from my perspective that many of the church leaders believe that if we, as a, as a church, just be nice, avoid all of these areas that um, go against the cultural or the political orthodoxies of the day, if we can just avoid all of that and be nice, that somehow people will flock to us and the churches will be full. And they've got more than enough evidence to show how that that's definitely not the case. <laughs> and yet that is, it seems to me at least, the prevailing view that we're getting from a lot of the church leadership. And that, of course, that makes it so much harder for the people sitting in the pews, because if they're not seeing an example, then it's so much harder for them to then have the courage to speak out in, in whatever context they are in, whether it's business, the school they teach at, or what have you. I couldn't agree more. Paul Coleman, thank you very much. Thank you.